Hello and welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Throughout the month of May, we will focus on OSHA topics. Today, we are so pleased to have Kelly Ogle back with us presenting on bloodborne pathogens. Kelly Ogle is the OSHA and HIPAA Director for Doctors Management, a medical and healthcare consulting firm helping physicians nationwide in all specialties with healthcare, dental, and medical practice management services since 1956. Kelly provides OSHA and HIPAA training and consulting to help medical and dental practices maintain compliance with their facilities. She conveys the importance of a safe environment for employees while reducing the risk of penalties for the practice. In addition to delivering training, Kelly performs mock OSHA and HIPAA audits to help clients take corrective action to help reduce the risk of penalties before they happen. She also contributes to the OSHA bulletin and the OSHA and HIPAA compliance manuals produced by doctors management. Kelly engages her audience with enthusiasm as she conveys the importance of employee safety and patient privacy, as well as the details of protecting the practice from risks and penalties that result from OSHA and HIPAA violations. Kelly is a breath of fresh air to all who have the pleasure of working with her. Clients also appreciate that she has hands-on experience as a registered dental hygienist. In addition to holding a Bachelor of Science degree in Dental Hygiene from East Tennessee State University and a Master's degree in Industrial Organizational Psychology from Walden University, Kelly has successfully completed the General Industry for OSHA course, a certified healthcare OSHA professional through the American Academy of Provider Officers and Laboratories, and is a certified medical practice manager through Doctors Management University. She's currently attending Walden University to obtain her doctorate in healthcare administration. A copy of her slide deck is available for download in the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel. We will address these questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you directly from PACOM uh, following the broadcast and within approximately two days. There is no need to request it. Additional CU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. Check their website for details. All right, Kelly, go ahead. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Um, of course, you're here for Bloodborne Pathogen Training. So we're going to go over a little bit of that for you. So, um, like she said, I've got 13 years of experience. Actually, it's uh, about 17 years experience, and I do do some OSHA seminars, audits for uh, OSHA and HIPAA. Um, I have my bachelor's, master, uh, master's, and I am the OSHA HIPAA director with doctor's management. And uh, we'll skip that there. Let's see. Our agenda today is... Um, we will go through the standard of bloodborne pathogen. We'll go over the, its definition and anything that relates to it, the common bloodborne pathogens that we will discover as far as healthcare workers, the transmission of bloodborne pathogens, exposure, um, and our risk for exposure. Also, some engineering controls that we can uh, have in our offices and uh, laboratories. And then laundry, housekeeping, and waste. And then the post-exposure protocol that's best to do if you have a, an exposure in the office. Now, with bloodborne pathogen standard, uh, it covers all employees whose job responsibilities put them at risk for exposure to bloodborne pathogens. This was created in about 1987, 1986. And they revised it in 2001. Employees must have access to a copy of the actual standard to the employee's written control plan also. And this written control plan is what you would actually provide or create to let the employees know that where they need to go, what the steps are to control if there was an exposure, um, and uh, 
the documentation also to provide to them for the doctors for them to fill out and for you to keep at the office uh, for their medical records. Now, if they, if employees or um, if you are an employee and you want a copy of these, you can request it and it must be provided to you for free for no charge and uh, for a, within the 15 days that you requested it. The bloodborne pathogens that we'll actually speak about today are hepatitis B, C, and HIV. Those are the largest ones that we may come in contact with. However, we do uh, have the chance of being exposed to Ebola virus, syphilis, malaria, and also the Zika virus. That is something that has been in our news. The definition of bloodborne pathogens is the microorganisms causing diseases in humans transmitted only through contact with infectious body fluids. Now this can be any body fluid, like blood, semen, joint fluid, any saliva, in dental procedures, vitreous fluids in the eyes, also urine, feces, and vomit if blood is present. That's why it's very important that we consider universal precautions because we are going to treat any kind of bodily fluid as if it were infectious. Hepatitis B and C, when we go over this, are liver involved and that's why, uh, of course, the name hepatitis um, with the hep. And then also the symptoms are going to be similar with jaundice, fatigue, abdominal pain, anorexia, nausea, and vomiting. And then the transmission will be very uh, will be the same all the way across all three of them. Now, there's one million U.S. citizens that have hepatitis B, and there's 500 people that die annually with a 5% chance of actually having a chronic infection. Now, this is different than hepatitis C, where um, hepatitis C has 5 million U.S. citizens and an 85% chance of getting a chronic infection. Um, both of them have the same symptoms, like I said before, hepatitis B and C have very similar symptoms. And then uh, the, each of these plus HIV can be, very, can be asymptomatic for this one for up to 20 years. But any of those can lay dormant in the body and we may not know they have them and they may not know they have them. Uh, they may be coming in for the first time in our offices and uh, going to get testing because they're having some symptoms and they don't know that they have hepatitis B or C or HIV and then we stuck ourselves with a needle or not using the correct precautions to protect ourselves and now we've exposed ourselves to whatever they have. So it is very important with uh, universal precautions. So this hepatitis C is one of the leading causes of liver transplant. There are some medications um, people are getting in remission for hepatitis C when they take these medications. Very expensive medications, but they do have much better medications than they used to. Medications used to be very toxic for hepatitis C, so that has improved. Also, it has improved for HIV. The drugs are better. Uh, it's actually decreased the death rate, and uh, however, the infection rate is still going up. There is more than 1.5 million people in the U.S. that have HIV and it's, the transmission is the same. However, the symptoms are swollen lymph nodes, weight loss, night sweats, opportunistic infections, and skin lesions. Uh, as I said earlier, asymptomatic for many years, uh, but there's no vaccine, no immune globulin, or no cure. So, there is a cure for hepatitis C or something to put one in remission. Then there's also a vaccination for hepatitis B, but there is neither for HIV. The methods of transmission of all those in any bloodborne pathogen are splash, splatter, or spill into open mucous membranes and non-intact skin, sharp injury. You can have uh, the risk for transmission if you're doing injections, IVs, surgical procedures, dental procedures, also any invasive procedures, cleaning a contaminated area, cleaning contaminated items or even handling those items in the general community, sexual contact, also sharing of dirty needles, and through the mother to the fetus or through the breast milk. 
Now there are some statistics on someone if we were working on a patient with HIV, we ended up sticking ourselves with their needle that we had used on them, we have a 0.3% chance of actually getting HIV. With hepatitis B, it can be almost zero if you've been immunized. That's why it's really important in healthcare that we do get immunized. And then there's 6 to 30% if we're not immunized. Of course, you can decline your immunization if you like. That is part of being your rights and responsibilities through OSHA. Now, with hepatitis C, you have a 1.8% chance of contracting hepatitis C from your patient. OSHA goes into how they want to separate the exposure risk. So when they did this, they determined the exposure determination would be to consider who would be exposed if they were not wearing their personal protective equipment or applying engineering controls. So in that case, um, anyone that is working clinically with the patient with any kind of bloodborne pathogen would definitely be exposed. However, those in the front office that may just work with paperwork, um, they, they talk to the patient, they chart stuff, uh, for the patient, but they don't ever come in contact with any bloodborne pathogens, they would not be considered covered under the bloodborne pathogen standard. So that means that they do not have to get their hepatitis B vaccination. And that's where OSHA draws the line between the, those of us that actually come in contact with the bloodborne pathogens and then those that do not come in contact with them. So determining what your risk for exposure is, having those determinations um, is a must and it has to be documented. Um, so if I am, there's different classes, there's class um, one through three, and one is a person that would definitely come in contact with the bloodborne pathogens, two is someone that may or may not, maybe it's a medical assistant that works up front that helps in the back sometimes. And then you've got group three who will not come in contact with bloodborne pathogens. And so you have to list those risks as part of um, your OSHA documentation. Now, how you determine these risks is what they do in the office. So the tasks that are listed here, like collecting, handling specimens, biohazard waste, tending to wounds or venipuncture at capillary sites, cleaning contaminated surfaces or instruments, aspirating fluids, dental and surgical procedures, also administrating injections and starting IVs. Any of those can put you at risk for exposure. And of course, universal precautions. If this is a step for infection control. Even though OSHA does not go over infection control, because a lot of that has to do with the patients and it's patient oriented and OSHA goes over more of what the employee would be exposed to, it is still something that we will be we will be exposing ourselves to. So you have to treat all blood and other potentially infectious materials as if that person was infectious. We cannot make judgments or okay that's my um, sister's boyfriend and and we've known him for years, it's okay. We can't do that because we're not only putting ourselves at risk when we're working with these patients that might have something, we're putting others that we come in contact with afterwards. We're putting them at risk. And so they had nothing to do with handling uh, something without our gloves on, okay? We are putting them at risk at that point. So we have to protect ourselves and anyone else that we come in contact with. With hand washing, um, what you can't see or know is on the surface could kill you. There's no gloves that are 100% protected, and hand washing is a very, very, very important step for us. We need to make sure that we hand wash when it is appropriate. We need to know how to hand wash appropriately, and also how long to wash our hands. It needs to be for at least 15 to 20 seconds, if not longer, 
And then also, maybe before a patient, after a patient, um, after lunch, after going to the bathroom, um, you may want to do that before different times. Uh, sometimes patients like to see that you've cleaned your hands before you come in to see them. So maybe washing your hands before you actually greet the patient or see the patient in front of them is really nice. And then soap and water versus hand sanitizers. If you can have soap and water, it's always the better method. Soap with water plus the action of uh, the friction between the hands and rubbing the hands together and rinsing them under the water is the best solution. If you cannot get to soap and water and the sink and everything at all times, then hand sanitizers will work. It's just that you have to use hand sanitizers the way they are meant to be used. You have to put enough on your hand for it to cover all surfaces of the hand and make sure that you put enough on there that it stays wet for at least 30 seconds. Kind of like it's kill time, um, what would be for a chemical, and if they leave it on the surface for so long, that's kind of what you have to do with the hand sanitizers. Put enough on there to make sure you can cover all areas, because that's one thing, with soap and water, um, you rinse your hands and it covers all areas of the hands very easily. Hand sanitizers, you have to get it in those areas to make sure it's sanitized. So make sure you cover all areas of the hand with the hand sanitizer. So with engineering controls, we have safer sharps, disposable phlebotomy hubs, also sharps containers and safety hoods. Anything that we can put in place in protecting ourselves from coming in contact with another person's body fluids or potential uh, infectious body fluids are called engineering controls. Okay, so if we put a gown on, if we put our gloves on, if we put our stuff in the safer sharks because we don't want to get stuck with it, if we, um, I mean in the sharks containers, if we use safer sharks instead of regular sharks, we are instituting an engineering control. So this is where our steps are to make us safer within our offices. Now with safer sharks, it's very important that we all do our part in trying to find a safer sharp to replace any sharps that we have within our office. So if we have a scalpel that could be replaced with a disposable scalpel that has a sheath that comes over the top of it, then we want to do that. We want to try to substitute the unsafe sharps that we have in our office. So evaluating, having other, people's eva other people evaluate, other employees, you could have four or five employees go over it, two or three employees go over it, and get their recommendations on the sharp or the safer sharp and write that down. Make sure you document everything. Without the documentation, you can't prove any of this. And so it's not worth going all through that and then not being able to document it and being caught not doing it. All right? So, um, involve the employees, have other people in the office help with the selection, uh, have a sharks inventory, making sure that you have an inventory of all sharks that you're using so you can rely back to that on what you need to use. Um, like you may have one that's a shark, uh, a regular shark, and you need to substitute that. So you have a list of them you can pick from. If not, you just have to pick and choose and it's very difficult if you don't have the actual sharps inventory. Also document and evaluate all those selections. You can have checkoff lists on what you want to do and how you want to do it, or you can actually just print off the information of the safer sharp that you're going to try to substitute for a sharp and look at the information, study it, give it to someone else, try to use the sharp or the safer sharp, see if it works, Write your information on the back of that information that you printed. So write your opinions and what you like and what you don't like about it. And then keep that as your documentation. But you do have to have some sort of documentation to prove that you actually reviewed it. The first one that you're actually going to substitute is the one that you've had an injury with. So also recording all injuries is going to help you decide on what chart that you must substitute. And make sure that you're doing this every year. Now the examples of safer sharks, we have blended suture needles, needle assistance, 
Also, needless methods for accessing lines. You have sheathing scalpels, blades, plastic collection tubes, capillary tubes, anything that's going to assist us in being safer when we apply it to the patient, it becomes contaminated, and we have to do something with it. That's where we want it to be safe, is after it's touched the patient. So the needles that you draw the medications with and they never touch the patient, you do not have to replace those. Those are the only ones that have an exemption on them. So for the safer medical devices, you're going to review the past year's device failures and also your Sharps injury log. Determine if the training or substitutions are needed and contact your manufacturer for any kind of training materials. You can also get some of that from your suppliers, also your distributors. Sometimes they'll have information and some samples. If not, your manufacturer is glad to do that for you. The samples that you get a lot of times already come with training stuff. So uh, if they do not come with training information, be sure that you ask the manufacturer or the distributor for some training materials to help you implement this new device. Then always document. Document that you trained on it, document that you uh, instituted it, and that you're using that sharp now, or that safer sharp. With sharp's disposal, you want to discard these items into approved containers, those needles, scalpels, blades, suture needles, whatever that you're using um, that is sharp, that has been exposed and is now contaminated, you need to drop it into the disposable sharps box. These containers have to be puncture resistant, leak proof on the bottom and sides, color coded, they need to be labeled and also maintained in an upright position. Now OSHA does not say that you have to have your boxes uh, put on the wall, okay, as, as a federal OSHA law. Now if you're in a state that has a state uh, OSHA program, they might be stricter and they might tell you that you need to attach the shark container on the wall. If not, it only needs to be maintained in the upright position. Color-coded, leak-proof on the bottom and sides, closable, sealed for transport. You do not overfill them. That is one of the things that I find in every office that I go into and do a compliance audit, is that they are overfilling their sharps containers or they're just not looking to see that they're overfilled and they keep filling it. So it's very important that you catch that and have those changed out. Now, reusable sharps, these can be instruments that you use. Um, also, this could be non-sharp instruments. If, if I'm in an office and I am transporting any kind of instrument that may have gotten body fluid on it, uh, my consideration is that I would not want me or my employees or coworkers to be carrying something back with body fluids on it, drop it, and that stuff goes flinging everywhere. So it's very important that you contain this, this, these instruments or these reusable sharps, whatever, and carry them back to where you're going to autoclave them from one room to the other if you have to carry them. If you don't have to carry them and they stay in that room, then that's different. But if you have to carry them from one room to the other to get them autoclaved, then you must carried in in some sort of container that meets this criteria. It has to be prepared in the room that it was generated before you take it out. You need to avoid scrubbing, use the ultrasonic cleaner or enzymatic soap, and then scrub with a brush if you have to. they rather you not scrub because what's going to happen is that you're going to scrub, you're going to scrub underwater or whatever, and it's going to splatter back on you, and that's what they don't want to do. So they want you to have a box or a basin that you can put the water in, and you can scrub the instruments there. So you'll scrub your instruments there under the water, and you'll have enough water in there to cover the instruments. Now, if you do scrub, of course, you're going to wear your gloves, gown, face protection, 
And um, if you're just pre-soaking, a lot of a lot of pre-soaks will tell you these are um, uh, these are disinfectants, or uh, they can be used to help disinfect. Uh, they're not going to stay disinfectant as long as you keep putting dirty instruments in the ultrasonic with that stuff. So by the time the end of the day comes around, that ultrasonic, uh, ultrasonic chemical in there is going to uh, be compromised. And so you have to put something on there. Also biohazard labeling, because that is not going to sanitize your or sterilize your instruments. You have to put them in the autoclave. You'd be surprised at how many people don't think you need to. All right, so with work practices, no mouth pipetting. Um, if anybody out there is doing mouth pipetting, it's probably not a good idea, so you probably need to stop that. Um, mouth pipetting is a very old way of drawing up samples uh, to test them. So uh, we don't want you doing that. Uh, no eating, drinking, applying contacts or cosmetics in contaminated areas. No storing food or beverages in those contaminated areas. And also recap needle only when medically required using the one-handed technique or mechanical device. Now, I have heard in the past that people have gotten in trouble for recapping needles, and someone has come in and looked through their sharps container as they could see it. It might be clear, it might be red, and they could see how many of those needles were recapped. So be very careful um, when you're recapping those needles that you either have a mechanical device or you have some way of recapping it besides just your hand. You want to hand wash always um, after handling anything that you think is contaminated. And they do not want you to pass used instruments back and forth, but sometimes there's no other feasible method when you're doing surgery. Uh, it's, it's a must-have to hand instruments back and forth. But be very careful with them. You don't want to stick somebody when you're handing those instruments off. So with personal protective equipment, we have gloves, gowns, face shield, goggles, plus mask, also something that is appropriate to the task. So if you need a utility glove because you're scrubbing instruments or because you're cleaning a room, then you need to put the utility glove on, not the medical glove. Um, if you're handling a patient, you're going to do an injection or draw blood, yes, you can wear those medical gloves, and medical gloves are useful in most parts of the facility or um, where you're working. However, it is very important that you have some sort of vinyl or puncture-resistant gloves to make sure that you can uh, take care of things when you need to. For example, if you have to scrub instruments, it is recommended by OSHA that you wear puncture-resistant gloves. Or if you're cleaning contaminated items or uh, scrubbing instruments, handling instruments once they're contaminated, you should wear utility gloves. Uh, appropriate to the task and aware, turn wrong side out when removing, remove and discard where contained or contain where used, and clean your hands again. So other personal protective information is that it is provided by the employer, it's maintained and replaced by the employer. So if there are any personal protective equipment items that are not working for you. Now, I'm not saying just because you didn't like the glasses or the goggles that you had on your face. Um, if it is a legitimate reason and you cannot use them, they're causing pain, uh, they're causing an allergy, any reason like that, then ask your employer to substitute it for you. The personal protective equipment versus the uniform, we'll talk about that in a minute. Also, um, we'll talk about shoes in your practice in a few minutes. Uh, the appropriate to the user, like I said, making sure that they do fit properly, that they accommodate any kind of allergies or any irritations that you may have with this personal protective equipment, and use common sense guidelines. So if you know that you're supposed to be wearing a gown or gloves or face shield, and you're not doing it, then you're not applying the common sense guidelines. Um, your personal protective equipment versus uniform. Your personal protective equipment is essentially anything that you wear that is going to stop anything from getting on you 
that is infectious. Um, so if you're using your uniform for that reason, then your uniform is your personal protective equipment. Uh, if you walk in with your uniform, you see patients all day and you never put a coat on and you got your clothes contaminated, then those contaminated clothes cannot be taken home to be laundered. They have to be laundered on site or you have to have a linen service. Um, so your personal protective equipment, if you use it or you use your uniform as your personal protective equipment, um, it is not supposed to be taken off or it's not supposed to be taken home. It needs to be taken off there and laundered. Also about your shoes and what you do in your practice, it's very important that your employer is the one to determine what shoes are the best because some people will try to wear flip-flops or very cute sandals and tiny little sandals and, and that's great. Um, but if he or she, the employer, were to uh, have an accident and you were to stick yourself because you dropped it on your foot or you dropped anything on your foot, um, that's going to fall under OSHA. Uh, and they're going to wonder why you weren't told to do what you needed to do and wear something safe. So it's very important that those guidelines are drawn on what shoes you can wear within the facility. The hepatitis B vaccination, it's free to all employees whose jobs and responsibilities put them at risk for exposure. Also, the employee pays for the first two rounds of shots, which is three shots for six months and another three shots for six months. Now, once that has been done, you may decide after two rounds uh, and the titer is still low that you don't want to do it no more. If you do decide that that's something you want to do, then you pay out of pocket. The employee pays, not the employer. Uh, also, you need to document any hepatitis B vaccination, uh, and that will be kept 30 years beyond termination. And then they'll do a blood test to test your, uh, to see if you're positive for the antibodies. So they'll do it after the first, the blood test is first one to two months after the third shot. And then if it's low, you can repeat it. If it's low again, you can repeat it. But if it's still low, you may want the, uh, you may need to seek medical advice because there could be an issue there that you're not showing uh, the hepatitis B in your body. Now the shot records, lab report, and the declination, if someone declines, you'll keep it all in one area. The laundry. Employees must not take any kind of contaminated items or personal protective equipment home. It should be done on site or with a linen service. And on site, there should be a container with PPE, training, sharps container, monthly bleach cycle, and OSHA does not go over the washing instructions. It will only, uh, CDC actually applies those and tells you 160 degrees Fahrenheit or 125 plus a cup of bleach. So OSHA doesn't have any kind of laundry instruction. Uh, like I said, there is uh, a way to look that up if you're looking, want to know what the CDC says about the laundry. So CDC.gov is a very good website along with OSHA. But sometimes OSHA doesn't cover several things like these laundry instructions. So CDC is going to have that better information for you. Then of course you could call linen service, um, but you do have to let them know ahead of time that you may be giving them biohazardous materials or materials or jackets, whatever, that may have contamination on them so they can prepare their staff for handling your laundry. The biohazard waste, you need to discard these items in the biohazard waste containers. These are the red bags. gloves that are visibly contaminated, also uh, any saturated or caked absorbent materials, liquid or semi-liquid blood, and other potentially infectious materials. So anything that you consider uh, bloody enough or uh, saturated enough that you could get it passed on to you by handling it, then it's wet enough or it's uh, contaminated enough you need to put it into the biohazard bag. Then you'll seal that container that you have that in, and they'll get rid of it, your waste hauler will come pick it up. So OSHA governs waste only while it's in your facility. DOT governs it while it's in public transport. There are state agencies you may have uh, that you could look up or talk to if you had any questions. 
you have EPA, public health, and there's some others. Um, always follow the stricter law that applies and ask your waste hauler. Um, ask your waste hauler first. They may have a pretty good answer. If you don't get an answer that you feel is correct, contact another waste hauler. They don't have any, um, any reason to lie to you. Uh, but however, if you have signed on with a large waste hauler, then they may charge you for certain things. So just making sure that you cover your bases and ask someone else. So with housekeeping, you want to disinfect work surfaces or remove protective coverings at any time that they become contaminated and at the end of each shift. You have to use an EPA registered disinfectant if you're going to see patients in the office uh, that may produce loved one pathogens. So an EPA registered disinfectant would be best. Also, a written schedule for your general cleaning. This schedule will have, uh, if you clean in between the patients, uh, you wipe down the walls once a week, uh, you clean out the refrigerator once a week, whatever you're doing as far as your cleanup or your general cleaning, then write it down. They will periodically, well, you can periodically inspect waste containers and clean as needed. So sometimes people may not have remembered to put the bag back in there. And so it's very important that anything that you've dumped in there and then realize it, that it's sanitized and it's kept out of there too because all you're doing is just spreading the germs that were down in there to begin with. So here's an example of a general healthcare cleaning schedule. Um, clean before and after every patient and then clean at the end of each day. There's a maintenance staff, you may want to put that and that they clean once a week. So anything that you're doing or using as far as your cleaning schedule, you can write down there. Uh, just make sure that it's documented. When you are cleaning, uh, especially disinfection, you need to have an EPA registered disinfectant. It needs to observe its kill time. If you're putting it on something, it's going to say on the back of it, please, you know, leave on for 10 minutes, 10 seconds, you know, 5 seconds. It's going to let you know how long it needs to be left on that surface before you wipe it up or clean it up. You have to disinfect work surfaces and also remove or change any coverings that have become contaminated. And then uh, patient care is not addressed by OSHA. So if you hear someone say, oh, we need to worry about OSHA, it happens to do with a patient, it's not. It's not an OSHA thing. Uh, physically remove any debris and avoid scrubbing and then use the approved disinfectant uh, that you have chosen for your EPA registered disinfectant and avoid hazardous chemicals when you can. With this symbol, it has to be placed on all sharps containers, biohazardous containers, biohazardous materials, anything that could be biohazardous or um, may not be, uh, they're either biohazardous or they may be dangerous to you as far as uh, what's placed in them. So having that label for biohazardous materials would be important. You can also put those on such things as cabinets. If you have a sharps container underneath the cabinet or a place of storage for things that were dirty, making sure that you put a biohazard sticker on there so they know that if anything's in there that they may not need to touch it uh, because it is contaminated. There has to be a post-exposure follow-up uh, once you have an evaluation uh, or once you have an exposure. When you have an exposure, you must get to the physician's office or wherever it is set up for you. Your doctor may have set one up down the street in a walk-in clinic. So it should be offered immediately. You must go see if they'll go ahead and draw your blood so you can get back to work. But they're going to take that blood and they're going to exchange it or check it along with the next uh, sample of blood that they'll get on you. And when they look at the two, that first one is a baseline. The second one is going to tell you if you were actually infected by that person. So it's very important that you get to there immediately so it hasn't got into your bloodstream. It remains confidential under the supervision of a licensed healthcare provider, and also it follows the CDC guidelines also. Now the blood sample's taken, they take that, um, and then the there must be informed consent 
for HIV testing all the way across the board. For us, for the source patient, anybody that was affected at that time. Also, exposed employees may uh, decline testing or may have blood collected. The source individual's test results are also available to those that were exposed to the source patient's blood. Um, also, the source individuals tested for hepatitis B, C, and HIV. So is the employee. Then prophylaxis, if it is indicated and they feel that maybe you were exposed to something or if you know you were exposed to something, tell them. You may have had a patient in there that had HIV or had hepatitis C and you want to be sure that you don't get that. So making sure that you let them know that so you can be tested for that and then they, they will give you the prophylaxis if it's needed. Um, there will be an evaluation if you have reported any kind of illnesses or anything, uh, especially if you've you got stuck, you may be having some symptoms of some sort, and it may not be related to just a cold. It may be related to whatever you had contact with. So it's very important that you follow up with the healthcare provider, and then they're the ones that will do uh, other testing or other decisions once they have looked at your information and feel that you might not be covered and have you start coming back. Now, this uh, prophylaxis is determined by the licensed healthcare provider uh, in charge of the actual exposure and the follow-up. It's best if you make arrangements now for getting to a healthcare another healthcare provider and having your blood drawn immediately. Um, so it is good that if your doctor or physician or employer can make sure that that gets taken care of, maybe there's a friend of his that does, uh, has a lab down the street, then maybe you could go ahead and have your blood drawn and have everything checked that way. So having an arrangement leaves out a lot of questions. It gets you down there and it gets you back immediately. So it is in the best interest of the employer to make that arrangement. Now the PEP hotline is a hotline that is provided for you if you had any questions, if you were stuck with a needle and you might have to take uh, the prophylaxis or you might not just want to know what the next steps are. The PEP hotline will fill you in with that. Um, the CDC guidelines are the ones that brought out the occupational exposures to um, the hepatitis B, C, and HIV. And so they do provide you with some information there. All right, so we are actually done a little bit early, um, and I was hoping for some questions through any bloodborne pathogen questions. Um, do remember that uh, it is important that you document everything for your bloodborne pathogen. Also, bloodborne pathogen training. Once you've had training uh, or you're doing it within the office with the employees, you may be the safety coordinator to make sure that you document that bloodborne pathogen training. Uh, if they have any questions and you can't answer them, write them down. Um, you could contact me or someone else. You could access OSHA.gov and look up those questions. So it's very important that you uh, contact someone and let them know about that. Um, also, the, the real big thing that happens to be one of the citations that I've found in ambulatory care and also uh, healthcare is just making sure that you document it. That's, that's one of the things that everybody gets caught on is, is forgetting to document all this information that needs to be documented. So making sure that your records are kept in place and that you know where they are and you have um, uh, access to them so you can have access to those. So uh, I will let that go back to Jill and see if there's any questions that anybody has. Great, Kelly. Thank you so much. We do have a few questions. Uh, when finished hand washing, would you recommend the use of hand sanitizer to prevent bacteria on the hands? Um, it's not. It's not a a necessity. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a kind of what if person, and so I always take that extra step. So I think that's great if you wanted to take that extra step to make sure that you covered everything. But it's not a necessity because what's going to happen is it could aggravate the hands more. 
um, by washing them, drying them out, and then using something else or an alcohol-based sanitizer is going to dry out your hands even more. So if it doesn't irritate you or that doesn't bother you, you, you could go ahead and do that. But um, I, re I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. Okay. Um, could you clarify who is covered by the bloodborne pathogen standard? Um, now, the bloodborne path anybody that's going to come in contact with bloodborne pathogens is is covered by the bloodborne pathogen standard. Now, if you're asking me the question, um, if I was the employer and I owned an office, I was the doctor or whoever, I would make sure that everybody was covered because. Uh, like I said, I'm a what-if person, so what if I needed my receptionist back there to step back and help with a patient or, you know, just to assist a patient, helping them out the door and the patient actually bled on them, you know, had a cut on their arm, bled on them or something. Um, so they're working in a healthcare office, um, there's always a possibility that you could come in contact with bloodborne pathogens. And so... Um, with OSHA, as far as OSHA and the regulations, they say anybody that could come in contact with it uh, would be covered, would get the hepatitis B vaccination and would be covered under the bloodborne pathogen standard. But if you're going to be safe and you want to make sure that there's nobody that could come in contact with it or if they did, they were protected, then it would be everybody in the office. But as far as OSHA, though, the bloodborne pathogen standard only covers those that will come in contact. Their their job duties will put them in contact with bloodborne pathogens. Okay. And before I go to the next question, uh, there have been a couple questions asking for copies of the slides, and they are available for you to download in the control panel, so you can go ahead and do that now. And the next question is, can the utility gloves be reworn? Um, yes, I can. The utility gloves, they, they, get, um, they get dirty or stinky after a while. Uh, what you need to do is you will get a pair of utility gloves. You usually buy them from your distributor or uh, your, you can go straight to the manufacturer, either one. You buy those and you take them off just almost like you would your, um, your medical gloves, but you're going to kind of slip them off. And you're going to wash your hands afterwards, of course, but before you wash your hands, you're going to hold those gloves, each glove, and spray it or wipe it down with an EPA-registered disinfectant, okay? And then you're going to hang those up to dry. Then you can use them again and again. But what's going to happen is because you use them as frequently as you should, um, if you did that, cleaning things with them, they're going to get a little wet. They're going to get a little bacteria in them. They're going to stink. Um, if you take those gloves and put them in what would look like a paper um, paper bag, um, you can autoclave them, okay? So we used to do that in dental school. Uh, we used to have those heavy utility gloves, and um, we would use it for like a week, um, cleaning our operatories and things. And then at the end of the week, we would take our gloves, and we would put them into the, the paper bag, and we would take the paper bag, and then we would put the paper bag in the autoclave and autoclave them that way. Um, they didn't melt. They got really hot. And then eventually, of course, they're going to get kind of gooey and stuff after you use them for so long. Um, but, yes, they can be reused as long as you take care of them. Okay. Um, when should you get tested after a needle stick injury? Um, well, you don't. You what happens is you go immediately, and as, as as immediate as possible. So you may be working with a patient, and you can't leave that patient. If that's you know if that's what's going on, then you can't leave that patient. But immediately after that, the minute that you can, you want to go ahead and go get your blood drawn, because the reason why is they want to see what's already in your blood. So you get your blood drawn. And they'll have a sample of your blood to compare it to when they, when they have you come back and, it, and given enough time for whatever you've been exposed to to possibly get in your system, then they'll have something to compare it to. That's why it's important that you immediately go so they can get what is in your body at that moment and not what you may have been affected with. Okay. And can the blood be drawn at my office? Yes. 
Yes, it can. Everybody asks that. As long as there's a licensed healthcare provider on site to do the um, review of the blood draw. So if you get the if you get the blood drawn, say I'm the physician, I have uh, one of my employees, I draw the blood, I send it off to a lab, or we have a lab there. Um, we test the blood, so somebody has to read the results or give the results back to the person, and it has to be a licensed healthcare provider. It cannot be um, possibly a medical assistant because they can't tell you what the results are. It has to be somebody that is a licensed healthcare provider, like a um, uh, a physician or a nurse practitioner, or somebody uh, more qualified that can read that stuff and give you the results. Okay. Okay. Um, do you advise a log for documentation, and what would you include in this log? Um, for documentation, it, it all depends. If you're uh, for bloodborne pathogen uh, documentation, you would want um, doing your Sharps analysis. Um, now, things that you have to document on would be the hepatitis B vaccination. You want documentation of that to make sure everybody has it. Uh, you want the documentation of any Sharps injuries that you've had and the treatment of those Sharps injuries. Um, you want the exposure risk groups um, grouped together. You want that documentation. You want your Sharps analysis documented. Um, also, you have uh, other things that, like the eyewash station, the fire extinguisher, those are OSHA things, but there's other things that have to be documented. But as far as bloodborne pathogens, um, pretty much that would cover it. So your, um, your hepatitis B vaccination, if anybody's had any sick injuries, their medical follow-up, you would need documented and kept in a file, and also your Sharps analysis. All right, and how long should you keep those records? Um, they all have to be kept for 30 years beyond the termination of the employee unless the employee is employed for less than 12 months. So if I came into an office, I was employed for six months, you can send me home with my medical records or information. But once they are there for 12 months, you have to keep it for 30 years beyond their termination. All right. Well, that wraps up our questions. Kelly, thank you so much. Um, excellent presentation. Please use her contact information for any questions um, that you have after the presentation, or if you send them to us, we will forward them on to her. Your PACOM certificate will be emailed automatically from PACOM within approximately two days. Please join us again tomorrow with Kelly again discussing OSHA's hazard communication standard. You can register for this webinar if you haven't already done so uh, on our website, or you can request a demo of our compliance solution at 1sthcc.com, or you can call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I look forward to talking with you all tomorrow. Have a great day.